Hello, I'm Adam Sutherland. I'm the director of Grisdale Arts and I'm introducing the White Pubes podcast, Cultural Institutions for Today, a look at the governance and ownership of arts organisations. The White Pube is the collective identity of Gabriela Della Puente and Zarina Mohammed, both of whom are artists and courageous, outspoken and provocative critics. They challenge the art world and its systems and much of their work rallies for change. In this podcast, they speak to representatives from two very different organisations, Liam Norton from the Invisible Wind Factory and the Casmere in Liverpool, a commercial organisation which has grown from grassroots base, and Zane Dada, co-founder of the Killer Collective, a multidisciplinary arts collective that platforms the work of Muslim artists. In both interviews, they interrogate the existing examples of governance structures and look at ways that arts organisations could be more proactive for today. How do we want to open this? Yeah, we've just played the full jingle. I'm sorry. Um, we've not done a podcast in years and felt nostalgic and I wanted to include it all. And there you go. It's a work of art. <laughs> Someone made it for us years ago called Toy Noise. It's boss. Love it. Hello. Yes, we are the White Pube. My name is Zarina Mohammed. I am from and based in London. And I'm Gabrielle Della Puente. I'm from and based in Liverpool. We run an art criticism website and share thoughts feelings and more recently memes about the art world exhibitions the way things run we have been invited by grisdale they got in touch with us to ask us to make an episode of their farmyard radio because they are in the midst of undertaking a buyout of the pub with a plan to turn it into an art space of sorts but also still a pub maybe kind of bit of both and they are asking different art people to make podcasts like this as food for thought as they move forward um so i think there's a lot to talk about in that venture but what we decided to like investigate through this podcast is kind of the aesthetics and also the infrastructure and logistics and maybe also the responsibilities of running a space that is multifunctional so if a space is more than one thing art plus something else what do we call it we have been kind of working title calling it a hybrid space a multi-purpose art center i've taken to calling them like 50 50s kind of taking the piss because it reminds me of that really great kids game show that i used to watch after school but also i think a 50 50 gives quite a lot of agency to the art thing and whatever the other thing is because it might be that you go to that other thing on one trip but next time you just come back and see the paintings. Like, it's not that this is an art space with a really great bookshop. It's an art space and it's a bookshop and they're two things in and of themselves. I personally hate it. I respect the sentiment of the space, but I hate the name because it makes it sound like Tic Tacs. You know those green and orange ones? Or sugar-free gum. (laughs) Home is (laughs) 50-50. Home is best of both is fit it's a great bread that's all i'm going to say on the matter back to the podcast <laughs> so we're going to be speaking to two guests today the first one will be liam norton who is gab's sort of day job boss in a sense would you say yeah yeah and then the second is zane dada who wrote a paper on space survival and sustainability the future of community arts organizations in the uk reddit thought that was interesting and relevant and he's very clever And in that, we're going to be speaking to two people who are really imminent in this thinking and in this uh, research in a way that, you know, we we don't necessarily know because we're often on the outside of these things just having a guess. 
as Zarina said, Liam is the boss kind of of what I do in a way, but not really in practice, which we'll describe. We do both have jobs outside of the White Pube, and mine is that I run an art space in Liverpool City Centre called Output Gallery. The space that I run it in is owned by a wider organisation called Invisible and Factory Limited, and they run two sites. So the site that I'm based at uh, is also host to an outdoor bar called the Casimir Gardens, and there's like a micro venue inside called the Stockroom that puts on music and dance and theatre and just different workshop type stuff. And then also in that complex, there's Output Gallery, which is in kind of a long room that also has a vintage shop at the front of it called Total Recall Vintage. And we have a dividing wall in the middle. So that was a kind of really conscious choice. Uh, there's a lot going on in that, I understand. And there's a lot going on in that. And I don't kind of expect you to memorize it all, but it's just relevant to the conversation we're going to have. Um, and then Invisible Wind Factory's second site is absolutely huge. It holds a music venue. There's um, a wood, metal and electronics workshop. There's artist studios and office space upstairs and like a factory kitchen. And there's an underground venue called the Substation, which does host music, but also things like horror film festivals. And generally their program is a mix of things that they've put on themselves and produced or external hires and bookings. So there's things like weddings, beer festivals, music festivals, orchestral performances. I know that there was a Labour Party rally last year rest in peace, that future. And yeah, there's also just really big club nights as well. So I know them well because I managed that gallery in the first complex. And we wanted to start off this conversation by speaking to Liam to learn about his background in working with hybrid spaces. How has that come about for him? And also to seek out any advice he would have to people who are planning on organizing in the same way all in the hopes that this is really relevant to Grisdale as they um, as they go forward. So yeah, here's Liam. Well, I'm Liam Norton. I'm a director of a company called the Invisible Wind Factory Limited, and we have various names that we're locally and nationally known by, the main one being the Casimir. We are a DIY in, uh, independent, slightly multi-thread arts organisation. Uh, we run two venues, uh, one being um, a giant music venue in the North Docks of Liverpool. And then we have another site in the centre of Liverpool in the Rope Walks um, commercial area. What is your role in all that? Like on, on the day-to-day, -day, what do you do? Executively run the organisation. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm the managing director of it, so very hands-on. So I sort of run the, run the company strategically, if you like. Um, run the finance bit in direction you go but then I was very much a practitioner so um, I, I manage day-to-day -day, run the venue sort of run the nuts and bolts as well so we're a sort of very hands-on organization and how did it all start if we go back to 2007 we're like on the eve of um, capital culture in Liverpool so Liverpool's a very different city back then just hadn't gone through a lot of the the sort of gentrification and um, development that Leeds and Manchester had done. You know, on on the surface of things, that was about to happen. It just hadn't happened yet. Our team, really early version of that, basically really didn't have much connection to Liverpool at all. Um, but were on the sort of national network of kind of DIY artists from sort of musicians, um, makers, sort of writers, sort of loosely loosely connected folk that are basically met through, um, I guess, the festival circuit and um, through the art school of Leeds, um, the fine art department of um, Leeds met. The core team that first came to Liverpool, they sort of stayed together and created a few kind of immersive theatre nights called the Casimir, or Casimir 22 back then, um, in Oxford. Um, and occupied an empty um, bingo hall called, oh, what's bored? <laughs> I didn't know about this bit. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. So basically, yeah, so this, <laughs> the cycle of basically like t um, occupying old buildings that were like completely derelict, but had a bit of charm to them and filling it with people and artists and making a, um, 
events happen. This has happened quite a few times and actually really started off in in, um, in Oxford. I don't know exactly what happened. Anyway, let's just say a connection <laughs> happened with Liverpool somehow. I, uh, my, my, my memory is hazy as to exactly how this happened. Just totally different landscape. So essentially, it was just the idea that we'd just grab a building um, and that was probably going to be dead cheap, make some connections, see how it goes. Fundamentally, could live really cheap in Liverpool back then, but really, really cheap. You know, in the Georgian Quarter, massive apartment. So you could you could basically be skin, which was quite instrumental to kicking something off that really didn't have any, you know, commercial sense to it to begin with. Mm-hmm. So what what really formed in this first spark of a bunch of people actually landing in Liverpool was um, just happenings and happening in different buildings. And they started to connect the dots to what was um, already a pre-existing art scene. Um, and kind of what formed was a bit of a nucleus of people that all were quite like-minded and just community formed, which kind of back then, you know, was loosely called the Casimir Collective. You know, there was no business whatsoever. Just very multi-art, uh, very performative, uh, new content being created, both musical it was like late night culture but with a lot of theater involved one thing led to another and was back then an organization called the art organization dao mm-hmm. what they were which i think is quite interesting this might be a required thing for the for the arts in the future what they were were just a few people who were artists who set this organization either conduit between artists who wanted a space landlords who had empty buildings now those empty buildings were either like earmarked for development or they were just actually a liability for the landlord because the economy was low and liverpool just hadn't kick-started in the way that manchester and eastwood city center property just wasn't the value it was now for some landlords they just had empty buildings they didn't really have the capital to do up they're a bit crappy, a um, bit ramshackle, um, and the landlord either just wanted to sit on it for a while, but they, there was a tax for, for landlords to do that. It would cost the landlord to have an empty building. Because ah. these, these buildings were really crappy, they weren't really going to be able to get any rent either. So they weren't commercially viable buildings, yet they were costing them money. The market wasn't mature enough for them to want to sell it. So yeah. basically, the best thing they could do is just let someone occupy it. And, you know, it's quite a savvy move for a, for a developer or, or a landlord because you let a load of creatives into your builder. They pretty much start doing it up for you. So they start looking after the space, improving it. Um, they, also, they also bring the cultural capital of the area up because they start making it cool. And that's the whole sort of shortage cycle, you know, like sort of, oh, it's all a bit ghetto. Um, all a bit grim, but like the buildings like are amazing. They just need a lot of work. Send the creatives in and then just give it 10 years. Uh, that place is worth a lot of money for for the, the uh, yeah. was, business ecosystem. Was the art artist or art organization, um, was it national? So they were actually operating um, three sites. So they were operating London, New, uh, London, Nottingham, and Liverpool, and that was just because of the particular people that were involved, being um, from the squat scene in London. So, is it through that that the Casimir got their first space building? Yeah, yeah. Back then, the area that um, the Casimir Garden occupies now is called Wollstonehome Square. Around there, back in this day, so we're talking like, let's say we got um, the, the Casimir team got hold of the what became the Casimir Club. 2007, 2008. Um, over those years, like a kind of an amazing little arts ecosystem of Walston Home Creative Space was um, a really cool, like multi use um, arts gallery. Mellow Mellow, mixed bar, cafe, studio, uh, recording studio, um, drop the dumbbells, which the DIY music and uh, we were all in this sort of same little zone and all, all of those spaces were unlocked by the arts organization so they just they were just a really handy link to you know a faceless landlord which you know I guess if you're young you kind of want, want to occupy space you're not thinking too savvy about the future you just don't really have access to like that conversation with the landlord and also you just want that conversation to be packaged for you 
um, so you don't really need to do too much negotiating. So they did; they actually did play a really vital role in, um, I'd say, the sort of grassroots art scene in Liverpool back then. Um, yeah, that sounds I, amazing. <laughs> that sounds yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really vital, and I guess like it's quite a funny time. Just two thousand seven in the UK was a, was a sort of peak boom time in terms of the economy, but that didn't really feel like that in Liverpool at all. Like that, that boom time just didn't really didn't feel that in Liverpool. One shape in in at all, and I think it's largely to do with no finance sector or, or whatever it is that the, the UK, Liverpool didn't wasn't booming in the in the same way the country was in two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. But then end of two thousand seven, things went a bit haywire with the economy. In two thousand eight, it just like descended quite quickly into recession. So that whole arts organisation. It really helped because like buildings were buildings were empty, and my feeling is now going forward, like we're we're going to sort of nosedive into a recession. Buildings are going to come empty again, which are going to become problems for landlords. Um, best thing really to happen with those buildings is for it to be occupied with areas for community. So either be like an art gallery, or um, yeah, a music venue. Um, I think now in commercial terms, people could call it the experience economy. So it's also like the high street's probably going to crash. Probably what's going to occupy it or the best thing to occupy it in this sort of meanwhile period is to just get people in space doing stuff at very low cost to them. Um, and I think there might be like just a new upgraded version of, of the arts organisation. Probably be more relevant than ever now. But anyway, that was just a, a meandering thought. Yeah. No, um, it makes sense. I think it's interesting. Yeah. So yeah, what was what was the first space like? So the first space was um, what became the Casimir Club. So it was um, derelict, been derelict for many years. Nightclub, um, owned by a really famous boxer called John Conti. It was just empty. So yeah, the arts organisation really, the the team at the time who were just up for like doing just events, really kind of like getting in there with tools, um, a bunch of people, everyone's skin. But really just want to create like a community hub there in not in the sense that people do now where you sort of do a business plan and really figure it out it was just like do an event make it the biggest happening that they could do as many people who are keen in getting involved in an artistic or creative way and you know weave together some sort of show narrative anyway so that just happened um 2007 and an event would happen would be like three months later three months later and then they became sort of more regular or something like that. And then sort of going into 2008, 2009, reputation really was like a brand new thing to Liverpool and quite exciting. And I'd say the sort of creative scene really connected to the place and that became a bit of a sort of, yeah, the nucleus of orbit. And bit by bit that became a music venue by accident really because it started off as just a space to hold these big parties. But, you know, bit by bit, at realizing it, you know, the, the team gathered that do regular events, you're going to need a PA system. PA system, you buy that in properly. Uh, then you'll start having a team that can run these things, which, you know, you start gathering sound engineers and lighting, improve your light rig each time. And then, you know, that, that gradually just evolved into a music venue where then people would come by and be like, actually, like promoters getting in touch asking to put on gigs. Um, so it just kind of really organically evolved in this way. But yeah, the, the first venue was this building called the Casimir. Because then we were like, well, okay, how can we sort of improve on things? There was a bit of a, an empty space behind the club, which was just like Wasteland. It was just a kind of car park space. Or a particular event where we wanted a third stage. We thought it might be a laugh to occupy that space and put a fence around it lag the space of the landlord for a short period of time that's what became the casimir garden so actually there's something really i don't know if it's ironic the only thing in that whole site that was never meant to like still be there is kind of the only thing that actually has because in this intervening time liverpool has had its own little boom where gentrification's kicked in the club that i, I was speaking about now no longer exists in bulldozed or student flats um and the Casimir Gardens actually kind of developed so far that it's like a permanent fixture now with a long lease on it, you know, an art gallery, the output gallery, uh, a music venue, and it's just got its own lease of life. So 
that's the story of that site yeah it's kind of it's it's interesting because i think between all these kind of high flats and hotels and restaurants and this there's the the new club opposite as well isn't there that there's this one remaining ground floor space that is the casimir gardens and it, it reminds me like um nail houses or pin houses um in it's like a saying in chinese that uh, people kind of have their the rights to the land and no matter what happens like they don't actually if they've got the rights they don't have to um yeah. give them up so a lot of developments will be built around like one remaining house that has refused yeah. to move it yeah, kind of like that it totally that. feels like that with the casimir garden mm-hmm. we, we've kind of done our own little version of that and um yeah i mean got a lot of struggles with it but but yeah, it, it, that that remains, and I think we're we're kind of really proud that we sort of fought for that. Um, ultimately, it was just uh, it was the it was the will it was it was the fact that it was so important to that street because really through all this development that's happened, we were the only ones left. Um, so I think us, including the developers and stuff, actually did like want it to stay because it was like, well, if you wipe that out, we really have lost any any of the fingerprints that really created that area's vibe in the first place. So then when the Casimir Club shut down and you moved over to the North Docks and opened Invisible Wind Factory, um, and then a few years later, the Casimir Gardens also opened an art space on its grounds called Output Gallery, which is what I run. And more recently than that, Casimir Stockroom, which is like the micro music venue behind it why yeah, i think i know like you know what i'm about is. to say why why yeah. why have you not left it as only ever one thing why is it that you bring in like these different purposes and different um energies into one space yeah and what's the well, benefit of that as well like kind of if it's a consistent working strategy like what are the why is why is it that you keep choosing it because you must be doing something right well, uh, yeah, tricky one. I mean, that probably that question's <laughs> that question's quite searching, really, because it's um, two edges to that. It's two edges to the sword. I think it's largely because we're just a bit of an ADHD type organisation. I just think we can't. We sort of have an idea about something, want to want to pull it off dead quickly, and then not necessarily lose interest. With, with that original idea but we just want to get on with something else suddenly so i think it's not necessarily a good business strategy to just keep changing your space all the time because um there's just definitely fallout with that in that um quite costly to keep to keep building stuff and keep refurbing all the time no no it's uh, do you know it's just not that strategic we just <laughs> we just basically it's not it's just not that clever <laughs> I don't know. Is is I want when you said it's the ADHDness of like the organization. I think that like, can you talk more about that? Is it about the personalities? Is it about like your artistic process? Like, what what is it about like wanting to do more and want wanting to keep adding new things? Yeah, I think like basically we're um, the team. The Casimir is just really generally just about the people. Um, we're, we're only a company or you know operational structure just just so we can actually exist and carry on operating in this world but fundamentally it's the particular people involved it's linked to the city um linked to different areas of the arts that kind of always like we always want to naturally fit into the the fringe i think of 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 where culture in the city is i think ultimately like it's it's a handmade place and after a while if you have the ability to have a handmade i've got a canvas where you, we can just keep building on it because we're not really precious about anything specifically we've never made anything there to a high quality so ripping it out and starting again is never really a problem we don't get too precious about anything if you could almost you know dream venue dream hybrid space what would what would you build like if if money wasn't an issue and if planning permissions weren't an issue and there was no risk to it what would yeah. that ideal space involve would it still be music would it 
be art what would you bring together yeah god well uh blimey because i know that I, I know that you've got so many different interests so i'm just kind of interested in like how would that how would that materialize i think we'd be a bit more idealistic about it so we've had to make a lot of compromises along the way um and some of those compromises are like they're not i you know i've negatively charged that by saying compromise but like example we didn't really imagine we were going to do loads of like big raves yeah. in factory it wasn't really part of the vision it's like yeah we'll, we'll do some parties and we'll definitely do like big giant concerts but actually we wanted to do more like immersive theater shows and we wanted to we wanted to be like a music venues iteration of theme park the thing that's taken over a lot is just the business of what we do. You know, we're very reliant on selling tickets. I would love to create somewhere where entry was free. There's, there's, you can make earned revenue inside, but you're not reliant on it. So they could sort of succeed or fail based on just whether people wanted to like transact with it. But the whole thing wouldn't fall if people stopped buying booze. You know, the biggest patron of the arts, in my opinion, has been alcohol for like however many years, maybe forever. I don't. I don't really think that's sustainable. I don't really think it creates, I really think it really creates a good arts ecosystem. So, you know, as we've kind of seen this whole like uh, COVID crisis is that, you know, once you take away your earned revenue bases being reliant on bars and physical space, a lot of arts organizations about to topple because of the bar sales. <laughs> I think that's really, I think that's extremely fragile actually. So I think what I'd do in the future is I would, yeah, I'd want somewhere that was free, free entry and different islands of activity that can happen in it. Maybe a real life example of that right now is um, Ile de Nantes in, um, Nonce, so you know the um, do you know the big giants? Mm -hmm. So the big giants, there's two big giant companies, right? There's the Royal Deluxe that's, that's come to Liverpool, and there's Land Machine. They're quite an interesting story by themselves because they were once one company, one huge, uh, yeah, marionette uh, theatre company that kind of split. One went down the the giant, the, the sort of giant theatre route, and. The, the the other spin-off was La Machine. It basically developed, it de developed animatronics, so kind of a bit more Disney-like, created like these sort of giant robots. Well, what they did in Nantes is they created an amazing theme park. And it's free, there's no borders. You just sort of walk through it, you can see this giant elephant walking down, and, and there's like there's attractions within it that you can pay to go into, and you pay to go and see their museum, and stuff like that. So I think that's a better model, in my opinion. I think it's interesting as well that like in a way the business even though it is like a 50 50 split between business and um creative space be that like music or art um it, it's interesting that in a way your ideal version of it is something like it, where the business isn't as big a part of it well right? I, yeah i think like my if i have i don't think i'm one to really give any advice to be honest but however i do think we've made a load of mistakes um i think my advice to people <laughs> setting up in the future would be like and maybe just sort of some of the mistakes i think we've made i think the 50 th 50 thing like it's cool i mean basically it's the intersection of things is, is where the magic happens so like you know having a pub with an art gallery in it and them having that you know interplay and the relationship and it kind of are one but they're two different things that's cool that's really important build on that i would just say when you're doing that be cautious of having those two themes separated out so there's a business model for each of them mm -hmm. it kind of means that like one doesn't take over the other they can both flourish in their own way what we've done with ours is we sort of like entangled bars operations event management we've got projects and it's, it's kind of, to, to some from the outside, they're like, oh, it's an amazing mix. But it's it's also like a massive pain in the bum. And when something doesn't work well, um, it can really affect the things that, that are working well. So in the future, I, I would, you know, rebuilding again, I probably would extract the bars from doing. Let's allow that to fail or succeed by themselves. My fear with, with places to set up is a bit of a sort of hybrid thing is it all being interlinked together, not really optimizing exactly what's really special about it. Mm. Um, so if I were to set up like a, yeah, like a brand new thing and be like, right, do you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to just, yeah, found some resources, some funds or strategic funds, whatever. I'm going to buy out a pub. I want it to be an art space. I would basically probably 
have somebody running the pub as a proper pub and like really get the nuts and bolts and fundamentals of that right someone else running the arts thing and they just they just are like you know they're, they're two separate entities they're just like going downstream together it makes sense i guess to have two separate things that are the best versions of themselves um because i i guess like my my kind of if i was to be really really like ultra the most critical i could be about the 50 50 hybrid as like a, a, a setup it feels like like the most pessimistic way i could think about it is that it's a, a result of neoliberalism and like you have to kind of be jack of all trades master of none but then you can take that completely on the other end and say like no well actually it's about kind of an enjoyment of multiple things at once it's about having your cake and eating it too and like creating something that feeds off multiple disciplines and i think it's so easy to sway from one territory to the other and i think swaying more towards the like positive optimistic end of like this is really good it's like a mutually beneficial like sustainable relationship like the way to swing towards that is to make sure that like yeah both sides of it both halves are are kind of invested in being the best version of themselves and like also buying into the idea of like specificity and like expertise and like if you're gonna run a pub do it well a fucking good pub yeah and not like some yeah. weird art pub like <laughs> let that be consequential Qu quality yeah. quality still needs to come into it there's a vague question in my mind i know that you you touched on it like briefly but um like a wider question about like you touched on the idea of like gentrification and like serving a community and like the effect that you had on seal street and the bars that came in after you it's not really like a kind of it's just something that i'm thinking about in terms of the model of the 50 50 like is it in the model itself is it about like that commerciality but then like you know we know that the arts in general is like prone to art washing i would probably yeah i think that's right i think like maybe to put the record straight on where, where i think because you, you mentioned um arena um you know you mentioned neoliberal basis and like i think we're a product of that okay? because we never as an organization we never we, we didn't start with any funding like we honestly didn't tap up a single public fund until 2000 end of 2015 2016 is when we actually got our first really small projects grant that is like um that's a mindset like uh, i think that's of like a conditioning of the market um, mm. and it, it, the circumstances that we were born in, there really wasn't much dosh floating about, or, or we just weren't, we weren't um, thought about it, <laughs> actually. You know, like, uh, I, I really heard, I heard of the Arts Council, like, years into doing the casino. <laughs> yeah, it was mental, I haven't even heard, heard of them. Um, it was so dumb, <laughs> in a way, but like, uh, but what it was, it just meant that we just made the assumption right or wrong but we made the assumption that a because we couldn't really explain to anyone what we we're trying to do we didn't have any business plan for the future we were just doing what we did as in with about a two-month view constantly we just assumed that the only way of getting dosh was to like make money <laughs> you know from the bar from ticket sales those two those two things would essentially fund what we do which basically is about as hyper neoliberal as you can get because we were just paying rent no subsidy we were subject to market forces so just what you could get from here what you could buy it for what you could get materials uh, how we could like turn that into the most efficient way possible and then what we could sell a ticket for and you know some of that's got to the market um you know people materials sell it for more <laughs> so it might be even worse now but i would say if i was an arts organization setting out now if you don't get wiped away at the first possible wave of like um difficulty which is what's happened to a lot of people people have come and gone so many people have just gone no longer exist um i think you do need an element that just only isn't neoliberal uh, where you know you're linked into a public fund somehow you're linked into a strategic fund somewhere just to make you a bit more secure to the market whims. In my observation of this whole like um, COVID era is that um, quite quickly rescue funds have been sort of decided largely on whether you've been publicly funded already. They basically sort of said, look, um, you demonstrate, demonstrate to us 
how you've been publicly funded in the past and how you've used public funds um, as we're quite interested in that because basically if you, you've been funded before we don't want you to disappear because we've already invested in you so it's not sunken cost thing if you've already invested in you're likely to give them more more investment that makes sense um, yeah kind of makes sense but it's cruel it's like <laughs> you know some people are doing really good work but they just haven't asked for any money before yeah building building the sort of fabric of strength is just having a lot of partners on board now th those partners don't need to necessarily be the ones that run you or have a majority stakeholding whatsoever they need to have invested in some shape or form and for some things it just might be a qualification from some particular social group or whatever but i think i think people setting up in the future need to make themselves um, visibly vital yeah well said um sorry yeah that, that sounded gloomier than i meant it meant it to be but like, <laughs> but like it's not actually gloomy it's just like um i were to re i would just set up again all away that's basically how and that was our conversation with Liam Norton. We're going to go straight into the next one with Zane Dada. As mentioned in the intro, we thought it would be interesting to talk to Zane because he published a piece called Space, Survival and Sustainability, the Future of Community Arts Organisations in the UK, which is available to read online as a PDF if you want to Google it. Uh, maybe it would be good to have that as a reference while you listen to the rest of the piece. If you fancy it, don't worry if you haven't got it. Uh, but we thought it's really relevant after the conversation with Liam, especially after speaking to him about, you know, the contest for space in cities. But don't worry, we'll tie all of it up at the very end. So we'll see you then. Here's our conversation with Zane. Thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so I am currently a producer slash writer but it's probably worth sharing a bit about my own trajectory. So I sort of started getting involved. I, my, my entry into arts and culture was part of a sort of uh, youth poetry collective when I was 17. So this is 10 years, 10 years ago now. But yeah, actually that really, that kind of like feeds into how I ended up doing research 10 years later because I was exposed to different art spaces through the youth worker who worked there. Um, so did a bit of that, was part of that collective a few of us sort of splintered away and, and, and left that. Um, I went to university um, and studied politics and history. Um, ended up sort of getting involved in, in various iterations of campus politics and started something called Decolonizing Our Minds um, with a few other people. Um, and at the time was a lot of frustration around uh, the fact that SOAS was a university that focused on the global south but didn't necessarily uh, champion the sort of historic contributions of, of philosophers and, and, and thinkers and, and uh, intellectuals and just generally people from, from uh, those regions, um, but instead was, yeah, Eurocentric, but it didn't make sense for it. I mean, it, it's not great for any institution to be Eurocentric, but especially SOAS was like, particularly uh, contradictory. So we did this public lecture series and, and I kind of got involved in that and then ended up running to be a sabbatical officer to represent um, the students at SOAS. We, we again collaboratively and collectively ran a campaign called Decolonizing SOAS. So I left university and sort of um, did various jobs. I didn't really know what I wanted to do necessarily and then sort of fell into, um, uh, well, applied for an internship in West London at Bush Theatre and I didn't know much about theatres. Um, so I gained a lot of experience there. And in, in, in that interim period also was part of a group called Kidder Collective who platform um, the work of British Muslim artists and we, we make an annual annual zine. Um, so, and then after the theatre, ended up getting a job as a producer at a venue called Free Word. Yes, yeah, so that's, that, that's the kind of trajectory. It probably will inform the kind of things I will say about why I did the research in the first place as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the research you did and the paper that ended up being published? Like I said, I was in that in that sort of period between, well, since I was sort of 17 to, uh, you know, post-university, um, I'd spent a lot of time interacting sort of knowingly or unknowingly with what you would describe as community arts 
um, organizations, often organizations that make frontline welfare work with participatory activities and generally will respond to the needs of any particular community. Um, and sometimes it would be sort of in a volunteering capacity. Sometimes it would be sort of through various projects. Uh, sometimes it would be through, through sort of going to a community kitchen dinners and helping out, or it might be working to get a small pot of money to do a, a creative project. Um, and then when I got to Bush Theatre, and I had a really, you know, obviously at the time, Madani Yunus was in charge, um, which was like an amazing experience. And I think how he ran that space was really interesting to me. And I thought it, he, Bush Theatre occupied a building that was a former library, um, which had moved to near, where near Westfield is uh, in Shepherd's Bush. I, th I think he, he had a very acute awareness of, of, of being front facing towards the community to be embedded in any community. But I think in general, the principle of theatres having um, community departments, which is the, I was an intern in the community um, part of what Push Theatres output was. And I, I, I think I struggled with the contrast between organisations that I knew that tended to be run by people of colour or working class communities that were struggling to even survive as an organisation or didn't have a building or perhaps was situated in a community space or a library and other institutions that had these more professionalised, uh, this idea of outreach and the idea of sort of reaching out to communities. I found that contrast slightly troubling, even though I was part of it, like I was sort of caught in the middle of sort of doing that work or trying to disappear the boundaries with other people of course I'm not trying to say I was the only one there's lots of people doing that work so that contrast was something I wanted to interrogate and then also being involved in campaigns to save public buildings so this I guess there's there's three things that built up that research um the Shepherd's Bush Market campaign uh, again it's not a community art space so to speak uh but it was sort of being conscious that this market that um, the market at the time in 2016 was facing a threat where um, a developer called Orion was, was planning to build luxury flats above the market stalls and to sort of completely redevelop the entire market. And there was no promise made to storeholders that the leases wouldn't be raised uh, or increased rather. Um, and then, so we, we created a zine in collaboration with the uh, Traders Association to sort of chart that history of that particular market. And building on that, there was a campaign to save North Kensington Library. And then, and then I guess the third thing was the campaign to save the Granville in 2016. And Granville was a, a, a community center in South Kilburn that's existed for 100 years. So I think those three buildings, I was like, that's, that, that was a massive impetus to think what's going on here. Um, and and I'm, I was kind of figuring out as I was going along, it wasn't necessarily like I understand it the issues that play necessarily, but as, as time has, has gone on of, of research and gone more into it. Um, and then at that point, I decided to apply for, to apply for funding because I was a travel fellowship because I was interested to speak to American organizations who have perhaps faced the brunt of this kind of attempt from local authorities or private investment into the arts and have not necessarily survived it, but have learned you know, learn ways of trying to mitigate that. And it wasn't me saying, oh, let's accept, it was, the intention wasn't let's accept the status quo that the UK is going to reg regress into some sort of like, you know, it's trying to adopt American models in every, every single sector. And it wasn't like, oh, let's accept it. It was more like, what can, for me, it was like practically what, what could I try and give or, or research that could be of use? So I wanted to try and make it, tangible and practical, which I'm not sure I've ended up doing, but I felt that was the intention anyway. What really grabbed me about the paper you wrote was one of the recommendations um, about like, it was one of the ones for community arts organizations to diversify their income streams and find mm. new ones. I think the quote is generate different models of income to supplement any funding subsidies in order to survive fluctuation in arts funding. I'm aware that this is like a vague question that you might not know the answer to because it's just pure speculation. But what do you think the impact of that creating an independence from public funding? Like, what do you think that will do to the wider arts ecology? Like, do you like, What's the affect in your mind? Did you see like an affect even? To answer that question, I guess, I, I think of Centerprise. Um, so Centerprise is like a community space. So actually the New Conservatism article mentions it or references it as a, as a point of sort of 
an organization that that hung on until 2012 and then hackney council um up the rent i think at the time because they were playing they were paying a very highly subsidized rent but it's kind of i think to answer that question is sometimes useful to look in look in the past um to organizations that have occupied a model where they've you know worked separately to to public art subsidy and and there's and there's pros and cons to it because obviously Sensorprise hasn't survived but i think they're the structure of what they had from what I've read is something that uh, sounds more like a community space, but with the independence and freedom of, of local artists and communities interacting with that space. I think that that particular recommendation came from one of the, the case studies in America, or is drawn from many of them. With, and, and the kind of main thing a lot of them kept saying is ownership infrastructure. And that was a phrase that I kept coming across um, and this is why actually it ties to Centerprise, which is that, and, and hopefully answers some of, or a little bit of your question, which is that Centerprise, as, as brilliant as it was, and, 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 as, as, and, and that, I'm not dismissing that model, but there wasn't necessarily even a thought process that this should be a space that we should necessarily own. And I'm not even advocating that as like, you know, uh, community art spaces should, should, uh, sort of drawn, try and draw on philanthropy or fundraising to try and own every space they occupy. I'm not even putting that forward because that, you know, that feeds into a different kind of thinking around uh, the value of property and then sort of, and then things can embed in, in, in toxic ways in that way as well. But what I found interesting by people saying ownership infrastructure in the US was not that they were completely free from financial restraint, but it meant they weren't necessarily beholden to aspects of cultural gatekeeping in a way that we might be here, which I found interesting. And it, and it ties back to also to Madani going to the US as well. And, and, and perhaps the cultural gatekeeping of the UK and how it goes back to the enlightenment of what value in art is and sort of seeps down into how, therefore, what should be funded and what should be valued. I found the ownership infrastructure answer like, I was like, okay, that's interesting. Because in the 70s, for example, the point in New York, Creative Growth, Art Share LA, um, and I think there was one more, but those three were former warehouse buildings which were bought by all three of those community arts organizations. And then they, and, and a lot of them struggled through that time. It's not necessarily that it was smooth sailing once they owned the building, but they ended up coming to models that they both, all three of them now use. And they, they probably would, wouldn't exist or wouldn't do the work, the same work they do in the same capacity. If it wasn't for, for sort of coming together and somehow purchasing the building at the time, which was obviously of, of way less value back then in the 70s. I think that was interesting to me because they already occupy a world where public art subsidy is, is not something, you know, when they were talking about public art subsidy, it was in a, in, in a, in a really flippant way. Yeah, that's like, Two percent or three percent, or there's the National Endowment for the Arts, and it accounted for literally nothing of what they. So I think I'm not trying to advocate that. It was a kind of tricky thing where I didn't want to necessarily be like, this is the model, and you know, and in the state is sort of you get this approach which is like, yeah, exactly. You can create a sort of free market of of community arts where people will survive or die, and and you kind of like the state is just there to facilitate that. I wasn't trying to advocate that, but I was trying to think what are tangible ways of survival. That's where my kind of thinking landed, to be honest. It was, it was I, I found the phrase ownership infrastructure could be something that is potentially instructive, but at the same time, we aren't in the 1970s and, and things, you can't necessarily, the cost and rent of, of space in, in major cities in the UK is, is astronomical, so. I've got a wider question, I guess, about the way you kind of um, identifying the key importance of like space and like its lack and scarcity and the need for ownership, ownership infrastructure, also equally mad as a term to me, but like the way that that then rolls on to impact sustainability. And so many of, like, as you said, like so many of those organizations exist in like former industrial spaces. And without making it too London centric, but how, like how does that as a recommendation, like can it be worked for London? Because that's my, that's my main concern, like that culture in the capital is so, it's, inc it's so commercialized, so privatized. And yeah, it's like oh, Morgan's text. But I end up um, 
kind of latching onto are the bits about like agents of stasis and agents of change. But the bit he writes about private, what is it? Private, private public partnerships, PPPs, that like, that feels like a really key thing to like insert into this conversation because yeah, the model of the 50-50, need a better name, hybrid. Um, whatever it is, like it feels like a kind of self-inflicted version of that, like privatizing parts of, that same neoliberalism, right? Like privatizing parts of what was once publicly funded. Um, so like, yeah, how does it work in London? Do you see it work in, in London? Just before, I, sorry, there was a really like, interesting example of actually the drawback before I come back to London, but um, to answer that question, but there was a museum space or a gallery space that similarly was trying to draw on this model of owning its own, you know, it, it's a public museum in, an LA, in LA and um, they, they own the building and that was all secure, but they still, in order to actually sustain themselves, they needed to still uh, build on that by having a lot of partnerships with corporate interests and, and sort of to fund their actual programs. And they actually had a, a healthy eating program with, um, with uh, Coca-Cola. Um, like that was a collaboration, but I was just like, yeah, it was, it was, it was a bit of a, a trip, but yeah, going back to your question about, sorry, that's such a random tangent. It was just a bit wild, but it was basically to highlight like the fact that it can end up becoming some, some very off key process of like, once you go down that road, what, what doors it might open for you, you know, in terms of private philanthropic, um, investment and like corporate partnerships and like a lot of the community arts organizations there who I met ended up just veering into a lot of random like corporate partnerships with like really random like banks and and businesses and ones that wouldn't even like arguably like businesses that um the whole idea of businesses that align ethically with your model anyway sorry that's the tangent but it's just just to preface that it's you know there there are so many things that weren't necessarily things we would want to adopt here but in terms of how, whether it's actually foreseeable in London, it's tricky. It depends, it would need like local authority support to subsidize in a similar way that um, CAST have done. CAST, which the GLA in London modeled itself, modeled a version of it on, on what the work that they do, which is using tax breaks in San Francisco to help existing historic community arts organizations actually get on the ladder of, of sort of owning or, or or leasing their own space it would need it would need it would absolutely need that because first of all if you're a community arts organization where are you going to draw on millions of pounds of philanthropic investment secondly where does that money come from so it's like it's it would be like you said it would be very very difficult because of the nature of how how expensive london is um, so it would definitely need, it would, uh, for me, I think it would uh, absolutely need a real, almost radical push from local authorities to recognize the social value. And it's about, I think it ends up coming down to value, um, which, which is why I think I ended up veering into, in my research, thinking about public community spaces and libraries that already occupy the space of, of, of um, providing sort of space for participatory arts and community arts um, that were being displaced because um, that feels like the most urgent need um, or felt it felt like the most urgent need but to answer your question I think you would absolutely need a radical push from local authorities in order to even get to the place of what they're trying to do in San Francisco. I guess the question I have this is my bias <laughs> like peeking through but like about funding is there I guess within this a case to be made for like because there are so many problems right with public funding there's like where it comes from how it's accessed who's able to access it like the conditions upon which it's given like so many different points of contention and I think like you really well lay out this the kind of like the root of these problems when um there's like a really good passage about like the problems with funding, the way you describe that the state has assumed the role of patron in the arts, the custodian of a specific national culture, like all of those problems, right? Um, do you think <laughs> there is a case to be made for like a kind of separatism, like from government subsidy, from like it's like the modes of its distribution and like... I don't know, it's tricky. There, there are examples of that, like spaces which have occupied 
occupied a separatism organization called um, Chats Palace. It was like a, a community art space in, in Dalston in the 70s. But it's interesting that what started as something quite informal. Uh, so that I think Chats Palace took over a former, an old library as well, because it was a community campaign to develop the library. And then the campaign won out and they decided to actually just take over the space and run it as a multi, multi-purpose art center. So anyway, the interesting thing about like separatism is that um, Chats Palace ended up becoming a lot more bureaucratic and uh, not, I'm not even necessarily saying that in a bad way, but has, has become essentially a, a space with a particular hierarchy, with a process, with institutional aspects to it, with a staff team. Uh, that are, are salaried and that you know that funding comes from somewhere as well. Um, I'm not sure if they receive public art subsidy either. But um, what started with quite informal separatist roots ended up being absorbed by um, this this sort of bureaucratic procedures and um, process. One of the models that I kind of. That I was kind of most fascinated by in like a kind of weird way because I think I'm not sure if I buy into it I still got like some cynicism around it but um uh, the one in Chicago YCA young Chicago um, authors um you identify that they are really good at constructing a convincing narrative and like that whole like symbiotic ecosystem it's it's incredibly commercially viable and like that for me is super interesting because like I have my own reservations around that and like morally politically (laughs) ethically what does that do like what is the ramification of like working in that way but I mean also can't deny it sounds watertight like it kind of it sounds like a consistent tight logic and I wonder you must have like a favorite out of all six of those examples but also like beyond those six examples in the paper like what practical bits do you really want to take from the US and like copy and paste over into the UK? Yeah, YCA is an interesting example. I think what I found is, like you said, they have a very watertight, they have a really watertight model um, in this sort of like symbiotic thing of of teachers who are on stipends, teacher poets who are on stipends, etc. And then they are also very good at, comes back to the corporate partnership aspect, they are very good at building partnerships with corporations and, and leveraging that money and like getting that money to the artists that they represent etc right and so it's, it's somewhat obviously and the, the the difference with them is that they weren't necessarily based in a particular geography or specific location within chicago it's it was citywide um so i think it was it was interesting to like see an example slightly different to the others and that's i guess that's where the the sort of yeah, the narrative building aspect came out of it. But um, in terms of the tangibles that came that came from the research, I think it's probably two main things. The ownership infrastructure point I mentioned, which I think was repeated often, and yeah, as we've discussed, has its its negatives in terms of how it could be implemented in the UK, especially London context, especially in expensive cities. There's also an aspect of mapping. Mapping is such a broad term, if you just use that term without any broader or specific context, which is why mapping Oakland specifically was, A, had particular methodologies or parameters in how they went about to do doing that, which was like led by two foundations that had roots in Oakland to begin with, uh, or had knowledge and awareness of Oakland's cultural and, and arts ecosystem, and then had parameters like only uh, mapping organizations that had an annual turnover of less than 250k dollars uh, are people of color run organizations um, and also had the freedom within how they were mapping things that examine how informal community art structures can look like from social enterprises 50 50 models to like uh, religious endowment organizations to like all sorts in, in between which other mapping exercises perhaps wouldn't account and also they also looked at organizations were doing social welfare work and then in between would also do arts provision which is mirrors a lot of what happens here I, th- I, th- I think there's a real plus to doing similar mapping exercises with foundations or organizations that have awareness of pr- particular localities and I think if it's a decentralized mapping exercise which 
creates an awareness of what the particular needs are for sustainability for organizations on the ground and you'd, you'd provide you'd, you'd be able to gain very precise insight into like what is missing for these organizations like is it space sometimes space isn't the only need but what that mapping oakland project did is like actually identify what those issues were uh and that and then they worked with past to really identify okay these are the, some of the issues that we've come across see the organizations need this is how long they've run for yeah i would say that that's one thing that i i think could be really useful um and then there are there are elements of i mentioned the idea of social value and value um I think there are ways where ways that, and this is not necessarily from the US research, but it's just a reflection, which is that I think there are, are, are ways within legal structures which can strengthen the security of community spaces. Obviously you have assets of community value currently. That doesn't stop a space being sold. Um, it just means that a community would be made aware that a building is being sold to put together a uh, a bid for it. But those are the two main things I would say, um, drawing from the research mapping in particular, uh, and a particular kind of mapping which identifies what what particular needs are, both qualitative and quantitative analysis. Okay, that was saying. Thank you. This was a really interesting conversation. I think we could have gone on for a few hours but it's already been an hour this is already longer than it should have been this should have been a 25 minute podcast we've already taken up like double the amount of time so we're just going to stop you there and we're going to speak <laughs> in fast forward from now on <laughs> <laughs> really quickly i think at first i was kind of a little bit worried that the two people we chose to talk to wouldn't perhaps be in conversation with each other but after both of those conversations I'm absolutely sure that they both kind of agree from different sides. I think the way Liam's conversation ended where he said you know keeping both sides of the 50-50 the businessy enterprise bit and then also the cultural organization that cultural activity keeping those two separate making sure that they're both their best selves that kind of is what Zane was saying when he said like Ownership infrastructure is all very well and good, but you need to be tapping into public funding. We need like support from local advice, not local advisory bodies. We need we need support from local authorities, and we need their funding. And like that's such an important part of like making sure the community arts ecosystem is thriving, sustainable, and able to do its able to be its best self. Like you and. Liam kind of reiterated that saying you need to be tapping into public funding in some way I think both of them kind of fundamentally agree that like the 50-50 though it might seem like a case for reduced public spending in the arts it kind of you need that public funding for the arts bit and then fund pocket money from the really good business but I don't know I feel like the dream that both of them were kind of on the edge of but not quite able to realize was if you've got an organization who just for argument's sake 50% of it is in revenue and 50% of it is from a public funding body the dream might be that you earn so much revenue off the back of whatever your venture is whether it's a pub a shop a print and press a publishing house whatever it is that you can fund yourself and you can be your own funders and then you're not having to deal with for example arts council england and it's and it's decision making and it's decision makers who historically have been racist have been transphobic are so prejudiced in who they fund and what activity they fund that wouldn't it just ideally be that you earn so much revenue in one half of your building that you can make the decisions yourself and you don't have to put up with any of that but yeah. then in a crisis like this it totally falls apart because if you only earn your own revenue and you've not experienced a history or a relationship with a, with public funding then it's so much more difficult to tap into that now when all of your revenue stops and it's corona time it's just like a complete catch and there's no solution to it yeah I'm very much right so like this is very much the thing this is the wave i'm on at the moment i just want to talk about separatism like 
what are we doing about separatism, lads? But like, <laughs> maybe it's just that it's like a new thought that's popped into my mind this year. Maybe it's like the, the circumstances we're in right now. But like, it, this feels like the, the underlying thing that I want to bring up in every conversation. But this, this conversation we're having through this podcast with Liam and Zane, like us two together, I feel like it's encapsulated the issue with that separatist urge, right? Like, why do you want to leave? Because, you know, the Arts Council is a peddler of a neoliberal ideology at the whim of the state and with Murdoch's own daughter on the board, right? Mm-hmm. Fucked. Don't want anything to do with that. No, thank you, ma'am. I'm going to set up my own business. But then, as Liam identified, like, you're completely at the whims of the free market. So it's like these, this rock and a hard place. Shit and shitter. Where do you want to sit? Free market, the state. Why can't we just be happy communists? <laughs> like, and on that note... <laughs> Like there's no there's no happy medium. All we can do is try and find a way to survive. And I think both Liam and Zane offer like concrete ways of engineering that in current like a current scenario where like the state is, to be honest, peddling a free market ideology, right? Yeah. And maybe if like local authority or region led schemes put something in place that meant that cultural organizations could own their buildings then as we know society has, has evolved past the need for landlords and rent and throwing your money away and then maybe that 50 50 structure would make a lot more sense because so much of the income would not go towards rent and running costs it would go to it would go to like paying staff and funding and producing cultural activity absolutely sorted we fixed it we've solved it that's the end a klaxon over this bit <laughs> thank you grisdale the white shoes say fuck landlord i'm ending <laughs> <laughs>I'd like to thank everybody who's been involved in these podcasts and the immense amount of work that they've put into them. We're interested to hear your responses and your feedback. We are in the process of trying to develop a new institution, a new organisation, and we are looking for a very broad range of response to that, what that would look like, how that would operate. All the questions that have come up in these podcasts, we haven't come to an answer we're probably a long way from it. We need your help.